Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today on the show, we have a special guest. This is an acquaintance, a friend even, whom we've met on Twitter. And their name is Justin. And they are an educator. And they have joined us today to talk about the work of Friedrich Nietzsche, especially with respect to the notion of education or anti-education. And we want to look at some of Nietzsche's concepts against the notion of pedagogy particularly the concept of the doctrine of order of rank, the concept of resentment, and perhaps we'll even talk a little bit, Will, Will has a little bit that he wants to talk about with respect to Nietzsche and reading. But before I begin, let's introduce our guest, Justin, who's been a follower of us on Twitter. We've been a follower of them on Twitter for a while. And Justin, please introduce yourself. Maybe tell us a little bit about your relationship with Nietzsche against your experience as an educator. Sure. Well, thanks, first of all, for having me on. It's super exciting to join you guys and to be able to chat about Nietzsche. As my son said before I came on, all you do is read Nietzsche and teach kids, so you should be good to go with this. So hopefully I can make him proud. But thank you. I started my sort of journey with Nietzsche, Mr. Nietzsche, when I was in grad school, and it came from reading Foucault and not understanding Foucault. And I was like, how can I understand Foucault? And one of my professors pointed me in the direction of Nietzsche and Foucault points you already in the direction of Nietzsche to learn more about his project. So I started reading Nietzsche and at the time I was working in school on becoming a historian of Islam. And for lots of different reasons, I sort of stopped that, decided not to get a PhD and moved into education. A few years later, I found a school in Boulder, Colorado, that was an early childhood school, which early childhood, if you don't know, is like three, four, five-year-olds, pre-kindergarten, pre-primary school. And this school is founded in a pedagogy of the Reggio Emilia schools in Italy, which kind of came out of the post-World War II communist local setting up of schools and educational systems in that area. And they have a pedagogy that is emergent and maybe even imminent, if you would. And that so I took Nietzsche and sort of tried to figure out how I could put it in with that and how I could use it to strengthen that pedagogy, that classroom practice. And I think that some of the things that you see, especially in early childhood, makes Nietzsche particularly relevant because you can see that play, you can see that becoming, you can see that prior even, or at least a little bit prior, or it's still not quite all becoming reactive in children at that age. And so I think that there's a lot of insights that you can get and tools that you can take from Nietzsche's critiques in order to strengthen your practice in the classroom and to really make a difference in terms of even changing the practice of your school. So I think that the book that we read, Nietzsche's Philosophy of Education with Jonas and Yasik, does a good job of sort of providing a middle ground between Nietzsche's critique and teacher education and trying to find a place where we could both meet use some of Nietzsche's critique to inform our practice and things like that without making it too esoteric or too difficult or something like that for your everyday teacher or teachers who are interested in improving their practice in the classroom. So maybe put a little bit of a finer point on your pedagogy with respect to Nietzsche. Like on the daily, what is a, a thought in Nietzsche's work that you tend to return to? What is the situation that you encounter with young people where you think Nietzsche's work applies, not maybe not best, but in, in a very practical sort of way, or maybe in a regular sort of way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, every day, I think that it's sort of a general pedagogical practice, especially in early childhood, to be play-based. 
But to take that to an extreme and to always be playing, to to reject formal educating, to reject the idea of teacher instruction, especially at that age, and to simply just dance, as it were, with mm. the children in mm. the classroom and to play with them and to see their ability to create how they're they're always taking what is given and finding something new to do with it i think that is one huge thing that we do every day the other thing that i think about constantly in the classroom is how to be a moralist in my practice and to mm. not take these sort of moralizing aspects of how we talk and how we language with children to try to pull a lot of those moralist words and concepts out of my language when I'm talking, because I think Nietzsche would agree with this, but it's certainly something that the Reggio Emilia Pedagogy talks about is that we're nothing without language. So whatever language I'm giving out in the classroom is a language that they are, Deleuze sort of talks about creating together, creating things together as opposed to. So when we're in this sort of creative mode together language, I just like to use, and I'm conscious to use a language in the way that I interact with them that is, gives them that space, is not sort of as much as I can creating this little subject that wants to obey or do the sort of institutional things that we need to do. And while I recognize that's a reality, but just constantly being aware of keeping that type of language in that position. Right. And I'm going to go around the rest of the group here. We have Matt and Will on board with us. And I just wanted to react to what you said just now with respect to what I think about with Nietzsche. I had been a teacher for more than a decade, maybe 15 years or thereabouts, just up until the middle of the pandemic, reading what we had read in preparation for this episode here, it made me realize how Nietzsche's position on education takes aim at the state in the incessant axiom of the state to render its subjects into utilitarian subjects. And this is something that we see again and again, and the kind of liberal democracy that we live within pays lip service to things like the arts and the humanities. And I'll say that I'll concede that we have made some strides with education in terms of the kinds of differences that we cultivate in the classroom these days. But it seems as if that, that imposition by legislators or the state or the companies that influence those laws. And I'm thinking here of like Common Core and the involvement of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in the way in which things like the arts and what have you tend to get sidelined with respect to the the demand that a certain kind of worker, a certain kind of citizen be created, somebody who's capable of doing mathematics and accounting and reading for the purposes of being useful to themselves and to society. And I think this is something that Nietzsche is going to take aim at. But I'd like to go to Will and then Matt first to see if they have any reactions with respect to the reading that we've done or if their view of Nietzsche has impacted their view of their own education. So Will, you can go ahead. Yeah, what I like about texts that attempt to grapple with Nietzsche or take Nietzsche seriously when they're coming from inside the very like house <laughs> that Nietzsche would probably say is productive of bad air is that there tends to be a kind of recognition of the of the violence of that process and in some ways it's some ways it's it's similar to when your criminal justice teacher talks about Foucault or something like that right where it sometimes doesn't feel quite right <laughs> and it shouldn't for good reason but what i like about about the reading here and what i like about justin's contribution is 
this discussion about a way to understand the hermeneutics of education and of subjects that is not predicated on the precise administrated subjectivation of children that we see as fundamental to the day-to-day functioning of our society. Like simply talking about dance, for example, right, which Deleuze will famously oppose the dancer to the wager, right? But here we can oppose the dancer to the teacher, right? The teacher is the figure who replicates and reproduces particular modes of understanding the world, whereas the dancer in this situation is one who does not refute the creativity of the child. And that reminds me of a famous line from Inner Experience by George Bataille, where he's like, we laugh at the childish, we mock it, but we mock it only insofar as like, by not mocking it, we'd have to accept that it's like something we brutally murdered. <laughs> and I think for that reason, things as as simple as the parable of the three metamorphoses, right, become intolerable to a certain kind of teacher and within a certain kind of pedagogy, what Americans think pedagogy is. So so for that reason, it's almost hard for me to talk about, oh, like pedagogy and Nietzsche, because what I've learned to understand as pedagogy, right, is so foreign to everything from the technologies of the self throughout the history of, of Western arts of living, right? So it's almost hard to navigate these questions and these comparatives. But I think what I like about discussions like this is that it shows that other ways of being together are like entirely possible. And for that reason, I think it's valuable. Cool. Matt, how about you? Yeah. So until I, until we sort of put this episode in and done some of the reading and things, I guess I'd never really thought about Nietzsche specifically in relation to education specifically. It just hadn't been sort of a kick the floor for me, but in, I, I'm perhaps less well prepared than, than others here, frankly. But one thing I ever, but, but struck me when I read part of his sort of lecture series on this or anti-education was that the exact concerns that he was identifying, I think, in the education system that was developing at the time are many of the ones that we're still talking about today. And as also maybe for a slightly different context here, as the only sort of Brit on the panel here, we currently have two candidates for prime minister, one of whom will be the prime minister for probably about two years, who have both committed to ex- explicitly commit A, to bringing back grammar schools in 2022, and B, is for, are forcing all over again the question of the relation of the humanities to more, more productive, let's say, subjects, STEM, mathematics, and computer science, and so on. So right now, there is another round of discussions about should we be paying for education if it doesn't lead to greater economic benefits for us, and so on, right? It's very sort of short-term sort of sense. And so the way in which Nietzsche has talked about this sort of, sort of flattening out of making man into a machine through education, that struck me as I was reading this, especially as I'm the child of two teachers myself. My dad still is a teacher about 40, 45 years or something. My mum was a teacher about 10 years and then an inspector for another 30 or so. So yeah, education is something I, I, I was sort of interested in and know sort of a little bit about in the background. I taught undergrads for a little bit, but I'm, I enjoy what I enjoy what I read. I'm hoping we'll get into some more detail here as well. Great. Dancing, becoming child, anti-utilitarianism, a lot of Nietzschean concepts in focus right now. But the one that we're going to turn to today is perhaps one of the spiciest and maybe misunderstood concepts in Nietzsche's corpus of concepts, 
which is the doctrine of the order of rank. And this is one of the specific concepts in the book on education that we read. And maybe a good way to start is, Justin, since you've been working with this material, could you just give us an explication of this concept in the way that you understand it? What has Nietzsche said? Maybe what have the interpreters in the book said that you vibe with? And are there any points of divergence from either Nietzsche or the interpreters. Yeah. So, I mean, from the interpreters standpoint, we'll, I guess I could start there. I mean, they start with sort of a Rolls quote about uh, Nietzsche being a professionist of an elitist sort. And I think that's kind of the way that it is understood generally outside of maybe Nietzsche studies is what order of rank is like. So, I mean, for me, in sort of taking the interior view, and Nietzsche would talk about hierarchy being, I think, the originary fact, like coming out, two forces meeting together, there's a difference. There's a hierarchy already. That's how everything comes. That's how we know ourselves. That's how we know our power. That's how we know everything. So this, it's a very sort of basic building block, very foundational. But I think that the thing that was interesting to me the most about the author's work is that it, they're pointing out that children will create their own order of rank. And they do that very naturally, perhaps because of the way that it works in terms of like being the first order of things. But you see that in the classroom. And I think that the concern that the authors bring to the table, that is, if you have a state sort of sanctioned order of rank that's utilitarian, that is problematic, obviously. But if you also have the nothing there from the teachers other than that, then the children will create their own system of rank. So thinking about create, what can we do as a teacher, as an educator, to come up with some way to interact, to do honor to the natural sort of hierarchies that you see in a classroom, that you see in any group of people together, honor that, work with that, even draw strength from that for the classroom, which I think is another important point that the authors talk about what value we can get from creating this sort of emulation as they talk about inspirational emulation. Can we... And I think that this is true, especially in early childhood. I can't, it's harder to speak about other levels, but you see, for example, a child who is the best child at XYZ, building blocks, writing, drawing, whatever that is. The other children know it, they see it, and they don't reject it. They're drawn to it. They want to play with that kid who's good at blocks. They want to draw with that kid who's good with drawing. And even at that point, there's very little sort of moralizing of it. It's not a matter of, I'm a better person because I can do this skill better. It's just come join me. Let's play together. We'll do this. There's value created for all of the children in the classroom through things like that. And I do think that it can rise the level of everybody's accomplishment or feeling of self in the classroom to have that sort of inspirational emulation as the authors talk about. But I do understand that there can be this is a difficult thing to implement in the classroom. It's a difficult thing to do that sort of dancing and juggling and that there is danger, but there's danger in everything. And certainly in the utilitarian order of rank would be more dangerous to me. And I think what we should understand, at least in terms of what Nietzsche had written, is that he wants to elevate this principle to a the sort of dominant principle by which education thrives which is, I mean, it's in some ways, it's a banal point that people model themselves after great people. Like one of the examples that the authors give, you go and you see a concert, whether it's on TV or whatever. And then after that, well, you find yourself noodling around on your guitar. It's inspired you. But what Nietzsche says here too, is that 
these exemplars are the folks who are capable of creating the kinds of values that will magnetize uh, they magnetize themselves in, in virtue of being that example and they draw these youthful souls those who would be open to the coming and the creation of the new. Now, not everybody will be drawn by this sort of thing. What Nietzsche believes is, and what the interpreters try to prove is that this has a net positive effect on society, where somebody like Rawls, as you mentioned, will cast this as an elitist sort of thing. Of course, there is an elitism in the form of difference. And what I would argue is that differences proliferate in different sorts of ways. So it's not a singular axis upon which these hierarchies of power develop. As you said, you're going to have the strong athlete, you're going to have the strong writer, you're going to have the strong artist and so forth. And these are going to be different vectors where this difference is realized. The challenge is, or the question is, does this truly impart a net positive effect to society? Does it draw everybody up? Does it take us into the new? And so I'm just going to get your opinion on that. And maybe you could just react to that a bit, Justin. Yeah. I mean, I do think that is right. I mean, in, I hate to re-litigate us from a sort of utilitarian perspective is does it create a better, I think it creates, I think what I would be going for is creating a good life. I think it's important that we hit upon utilitarianism. In one of the recent videos that I did for Asset Horizon, I did a little vignette on Bataille's notion of sovereignty. And in the Accursed Share volume three is where he develops that concept of sovereignty. And that's also where he draws into focus the Stalinist regime, which he pinpoints as one that takes the rationality of utilitarian values to its highest level in the form of Stalinist communism. And to be fair, I think some of the very same things that Bataille is critiquing under the Stalinist regime, we are seeing today under neoliberalism in different areas too. Anytime the humanities get sidelined or sports get cut, which usually comes after the humanities, or certain things are deemed less than necessary, like Matt was saying, or don't help us build or sustain the productive edifice of our society, those things get cut in favor of developing the kind of subject who can reproduce the social and economic conditions that keep the powerful in power. And not only that, when we talk about utilitarianism, what we're saying is there is a part of life that has less or no value. And this is one of the big no-nos for Nietzsche, is that we cut that aspect of ourselves off. And in his screed against the education of his time, one of the things he's saying is like, look, so many people are out there for wealth and status and recognition for its own sake. And it's in pursuit of those things that we lose what I would argue is more sublime aspects to living, like time wasted in all the right ways, for example, or just chilling or or you know, engaging in the kind of play or rumination that, that gives a, a kind of flavor to life that if everything is striated and stratified, often doesn't come to the fore. So I, I think this is an important way to read Nietzsche's work, especially as the state since Nietzsche's time has not lost any power whatsoever. And especially in its alliance with capital multinational corporations, it makes the kind of education that Nietzsche is agitating for much more difficult in an institutional way. Yeah, I was thinking about Deleuze's sort of, when he talks about Nietzsche, he talks about joy being enough. So that's enough for, enough to give yourself a base to rest on this becoming, this chance, this multiplicity. 
the joy that you find in that is is enough of a value to continue on that way. That is enough to go to be anti these sort of statist forces. And if you can get into dance and laughter and play, especially in the classroom, and you can give that gift of continuing that to the children in the classroom or encourage them to continue that, they can continue to live as much in that space of chance becoming multiplicity, that joy, that uh, that willing comes from joy or that and that is the type of thing like at the bottom that i think provides the value or the reason to do this the reason that i would think it would lift all all people in these type of situations and provide some sort of antidote or at least anti-force against this these sort of state forces these normalizing forces right and i think ultimately what we're talking about here is nietzsche's concept of the will to power at least in a very nuanced sense i'm kind of reading it through the lens of deleuze which is what does deleuze mean by the will to power in in his interpretation of nietzsche well it's the transformation of the power of judgment and leaving that vector and realizing that the power of judgment was created out of the power of creation itself. It's kind of an ossified form of that. The power of judgment is that which represses those lively intensities, those becomings that could make us and transform us in ways that we find valuable and enlivening. And I think the kinds of things that you've been mentioning so far, especially with with respect to playing in the classroom involve exactly that. And you can see it and you can feel it right away. It doesn't take any, we've all had teachers where we don't need to read Nietzsche in order to get a sense of this. Once you have somebody coming into the classroom and there's a lot of police kind of language, there's a lot of judgmental kind of language, it really puts a damper on that dynamic. And so I think the excellence of the teacher or the power of the teacher is to be able to acknowledge that and, and harness it in the ways that we're suggesting. But Will, you have something that you wanted to add. Yeah, I just think one one area where like maybe I think it's like always necessary to push back against a certain reading of Nietzsche is this idea that what we do is we is we strip away judgment in order to let some like obvious or natural hierarchy display itself, right? This is a problem that exists in all discourses from utopian political organizing to classical anarchism, right? Mm. That like particular modes of governmentality obfuscate what would be the natural ordering of the world. Of course, that is in itself an epistemological framework that is only possible through various <laughs> through various historical forces and understandings of human of human capacity, right? So maybe like one thing that that we want to do is like fun I mean look it's tough to have this conversation through like an abolitionist framework right that's the framework that I come at this from prioritizing things like play starts to do is it starts to just break down through an ethical and political commitment all of the things that are able to produce utterances like the ordering of the classroom or marking papers, right? We have friends and folks who we know who have faced severe consequences as academics for pushing up against the most basic form of rank that exists in the classroom as a universal throughout your education. And that is the form of the mark, right? So what a challenge being posited to teachers is in order for desubjectivation to take place, in order for this this sort of revolutionary becoming to have a kind of uh, 
possibility for producing like an a sort of ethos of abolition, it has to be coupled with a letting go of your own subject position as teacher, mm. right? It has to, it, a teacher can no longer take the position pedagogically that historically they're deemed to, to need to take. Mm. And that recognition of the function of that violence of rank shouldn't, I don't think, take the form of simply recognizing some new naturalized understanding of rank, right? The teacher can't just say like, I don't really, I don't really want to evaluate this student. Let's just send him to a, to like a, to like a psyche eval group. And then we'll find like the truth of his subjectivity, right? And we'll allow ourselves to discover the truth of what he is and what we need to do with him in order to make him a docile body, right? So I think that when we talk about play, and when we talk about the thou shall and thou will, right, mm. and the innocence of childhood, it has to be, it has to be predicated on a commitment to the perpetual delinking and eventually the destruction of these apparatuses that can accept absolute difference without having to submit it to an apparatus. Mm. And I, and I mean apparatus in like the most general, what is an apparatus kind right. of sense where there is a subject and there is an aim. And I think that it takes a lot of work for pedagogy to have to take seriously this question of destroying an approach to life that is predicated not just on utility, but on what makes the quote unquote truth of utility possible. Because mm. it's not just attacking utility. It's not just saying, oh, we don't want to produce useful students. It's having to go further and say, what produced and what upholds this question of bodies with utility, mm. students with utility, students who have the potentiality to be this or that. So I think for that reason, like it's a really dangerous game. And it's always a dangerous game when you're toying with institutions that have historically played a fundamental role in the penal and juridical apparatus of the entire Western world. The first stockade of someone ever enters other than their house, where it's a foreign environment, is the school. So I think for that reason, like it's a really difficult conversation. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned apparatuses. It immediately made me think of the word rubric. <laughs> I think a good way to frame this is to use Nietzsche's metaphor of the camel, lion, and the child that you brought up. Because the figure that's most valorized in this example is, of course, that of the child. But in, in Nietzsche's progression, we must go through the lion stage before we get to the child stage, right? The thou shalt stage. But I think these days there is a tendency in education to want to capture via the apparatus of something like a rubric or something like standards, the very thing that occurs in a play environment, right? So we want to uphold the figure of the child, but not without losing the backstop of the lion. So long as we have those thou shalts in our holster, then we can play. And while we are playing, what I have noticed is, for example, take something like a group project. At almost every level of education, K through 12, and even in college, you have something like this. 
there are instances in which, you know, teachers are forced to, in very sort of granular ways, evaluate the students on the basis of a five-point set or a seven-point set of criteria on how students are interacting, poor, satisfactory, good, excellent, that sort of thing. But of course, amidst our judgments as teachers, I mean, there's always a kind of irony at work for me. Like there's always a way in which by capturing it, I know I didn't get it, right? And this is the kind of concern that looms over me. Now, this is all well and good in one sense, because of course, as we all believe, evaluation is part of the educational process. But I think what has happened in some instances, at least in, the, in, in my personal experience, the antidote to the uncertainty has always been compounding these rubrics, which chalk up to more ways of assessing, more ways of evaluating, more ways of, what to use your terms, finding the true subjectivity or the true aspect of the group subjectivity. And I think that's problematic primarily because it puts the burden on the teacher. And the function of this, and we can get into this later, is to obscure all of the other problems that plague education today, which is the situation at home, the parents' work status, the economics of the matter, and so forth. And so when things are going wrong in the classroom, this is one of the things that's brought up. Well, we need new ways of assessing what's going on. But before I get onto that rant, before I go to Justin, Matt, did you want to interject with anything? Yeah. So on the one hand, I think I had a similar concern to Will. The and maybe, It may be that I haven't understood it fully, so maybe someone can fill me on this in a way. But I was a little concerned about the way we were talking about hierarchy there. The idea that there's, there's hierarchy in that, in this maybe in some sense is okay because there's a sort of pedagogical function to this since far as the children who are good at art might be able to help other children learn better and so on in a collective way. That seems to be part of the idea there. But I wonder if this sort of leaves unaddressed where, where these hierarchies come from in the first place. Because often, and this is one of the major issues in a sort of almost a quote-unquote boring political sort of sense that many of our countries are facing today, is the way that wealth in particular can essentially purchase better education. I'm going to say better because it's better in the sense it's more likely to get you the grades that you need or whatever, right? So one of the issues there is whether we risk or whether Nietzsche risks sort of naturalizing some of those things in ways that don't help us to expose and critique them. And this is something that I think I'm not an expert in by any means, but a few weeks ago I was reading again Brary's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and this is one of the sort of core elements of what he advocates, I think, is the highlighting and discussion of existing inequalities outside the, outside and inside the classroom. He's going to be sympathetic, I suppose, to Nietzsche on the question of the, the mechanical student, as Nietzsche maybe calls it, and which you can maybe see an equivalent of in the banking model that Brary talks about, right? But I'm, yeah, maybe someone could sort of draw that out a little bit because there was something I wasn't entirely comfortable with, with that idea about hierarchy there. Yeah, I think the Nietzschean or genealogical question would be like when we say things like a student who is better, it would have to be talking about the value of the what make the values of saying what is better, right? It would have mm. to be it would have to be a process that that breaks down how we've come to articulate the better student. Right. And it's also the problem of like generation, right? So Let's say let's take the example of the student who like makes a really cool block sculpture. That's a process of generation, right? It's a process of production. It's a process of creation. And it's only through like a particular epistemological lens that one can say like this block sculpture is better. But it doesn't matter, right? Let's be even more basic. Like other students go to it because they find joy in that sculpture, right? They find joy in in the 10 blocks stacked on top of one another and they want to start do it, doing it. Like I picked up my acoustic guitar after I saw Joyce Manor, right? But to me, this is not an attestation to 
or a testament to the biological worth of the lead singer of a band, right? Or the brilliance of a child who can stack three blocks on top of one another. It's a process of, of it would have to be stripped of all of the, of all of the things that allow for a teacher to not just take notes that this child likes blocks, right? But to take notes that this child is better, that he has refined motor skills, and that his ability to coordinate the blue blocks with the red blocks shows a kind of spatial awareness that makes him more likely to perform better at administrative tasks. So let's put him in a separate program. And all of the children who didn't stack the red and blue blocks, they're dysfunctional. Let's put them in a special program too. It's not just the question of like, because things are going to happen. Kids are going to stack blocks. Kids are going to enjoy other blocks, stacks, right? That's fine. What we have to do is what allows for a teacher in a pedagogical position or what forces a teacher to, rather than let that play exist, rather than the teacher to jump in and start stacking his own blocks, right? He has to break apart the situation and place over it a grid of intelligibility insofar as it then allows him to hierarchize the students in a way that is meant to refine the production of particular subjectivities, right? So that would probably be my response to the block stacking, mm. natural, yeah. so on. I suppose I just worry in a sense that isn't there a sense in which this is already how our, our systems are constructed on the basis of a recognition of, of a certain recognition of a certain hierarchy? And, in many, and there's also a sense in which that could be seen as a means of preparing for the broader hierarchies out there and in the world once you finish school and go out into the world of work and so on, right? So would an, edu would an education that sort of quote-unquote recognized skills or whatever in that way would that actually be different from what we already have now and would it be any would it in any sense be liberatory rather than upholding i mean that's i mean uh, to me i think that's the entire point right yeah. what i think what i think a an approach to the problematic of education that starts to undo these things would be to have to recognize the function and purpose of evaluation right and the categorization of bodies frankly i think that this is precisely the kind of thing that one sees when one takes a more critical look at thus spoke Zarathustra, right? On what makes one small. All of these figures hustling to their perfectly produced, perfectly orchestrated homes, and then all heading back to their perfectly orchestrated and perfectly administrated jobs. And then they come back and they're given the precise amount of pleasure and the precise amount of pain and the precise. And I think that. Like it comes down to this question of like law and life, right? Where life increasingly, increasingly is foreclosed upon by being completely inseparable from the process of its orchestration and its administration. And I think certain models of pedagogy show just how bad this gets, right? Where a child can't stack a block <laughs> without it already feeding a particular grid of intelligibility. Right. So I think that when we talk about these things, I think that it's sometimes frustrating. We have actual pedagogical people in the room here. <laughs> so go for it, Justin. I would just say that I agree that especially working in the classroom, this is always, I mean, it's a difficulty that like you just have to accept that you're being stretched and pulled in both of these ways to some extent. I mean, there is going to be in a school, especially a public school, a rubric of some kind, but 
the goal is to have a strategy to fight against the rubric, at least in the classroom, as much as you can. At least that's my goal, I guess. And thinking about the strategy of like Reggio Emilia schools, which is one where they don't have a rubric, and this is their attempt at fighting against this, how effective it is, it can be, I guess, left to other observers who, who do those type of things. But the strategy there is observation, interpretation or evaluation, and then doc- producing documentation just to show the children's work and what they do. And in that process of interpretation and evaluation, the emphasis is on what am, how am I, as the educator or the teacher, what am I bringing to this interpretation? It's less an interpretation of what the children are doing, though there is that as well, and trying to interpret what the forces are behind. They don't use this language, but I will. The forces that are behind what the children are doing, why are they stacking the blocks? Why does this bring them joy? What are other things that I can help bring them joy to do in the classroom and not turning any of that end product into a rubric? That's the goal anyway. I mean, there is that tension, as I said before, where as much as I push against it, I do have to, at the end of the day, be like, this guy gets a three, this guy gets a four, and then they move on to kindergarten and they're out of my control. And it all, of course, is that sort of utilitarian state-sponsored educational system. But in the day-to-day, I do think that effort, that uh, that goal, that that strategy provides value to the children and to, to the teachers as well. I'm reminded of a line in The Coming Insurrection, because this, I think, follows you your whole life, where... In the coming insurrection, they say, everybody always talks about tests. Talk to your average French middle-aged guy, and he'll still talk to you about how he took this one test in middle school, and it totally fucked up his life. And I think that the, the, this, like, this, appro- this particular approach to like, the, the sciences of education produces a kind of... Adam, because he's a Hegelian, would probably call it a bad infinity. And it is a bad infinity, but we could call it like an endless etiology. Where we're always trying to find some sort of some sort of absolutely immobile truth about a given subject and like find a way to like launch them in such a way that they can reach that in a precise and useful manner. And I think all it does is produce ruin, obviously, but like and a lot of really disgruntled forty year old Frenchmen, apparently, according to <laughs> the coming insurrection. But I think that that yeah, this question like there, there seems to be this wall that no matter how much Justin stacks the blocks with the kids or dances with them, right, or listens to music, at the end, there still needs to be like a four, a two, a three. And I think that, that the, these are the fundamental challenges of deinstitutionalizing existence. Great. Let's shift the topic a little bit. Matt and I were talking before the show about, I, I mentioned to him the work of Frederick Jameson and I think Zizek's in the book too. There's a book called American Utopia where they talk about how the institution of communism would inevitably involve people feeling envious of other people. And But of course, this is okay for various reasons. And they go on. Then we have Nietzsche, of course, who talks about resentment. And the notion of envy for Nietzsche is that it can be motivating in some way. So when we do see an exemplar, for example, the lead guitar player of your favorite band, or I don't know, 
a gymnast like Simone Biles, for example, that's going to get the youngsters tumbling out in the garden or whatever. What does Nietzsche have to say about Rizantamont with respect to education? And maybe you can factor in a little bit of your experience too, like especially working with young children for whom sometimes instances of envy or jealousy are very transparent. How do you deal with that? And how does all that factor in with respect to your reading of Nietzsche? Yeah, in terms of Rizantamont in the classroom, it's an interesting thing because it tends to be temporary and easily moved past like it hasn't sort of ossified and become maybe like a geological layer yet necessarily at least that's sort of my interpretation so in the classroom just dealing with it in terms of these language like gratitude is one thing but to use an example like if i don't there are children who will see another person drawing and then they're just like it's not really resentment at my age but they will just give up if they don't if they're like oh i don't like i can't do that so i'm just gonna stop and and do that and not pursue what I'm interested in pursuing. So it's it is a little bit different at early childhood, just in terms of cultivating a culture in the classroom. So Anisha talks a lot about cultivating a culture and how we can create the conditions that uh, we get sort of, I mean, not really the outcomes that we want, but we can create uh, the types of the feelings that we want and things like that. So in terms of in the classroom and just sort of jealousy and resentment, just making sure that I mean, honestly, the most important thing, and they talk about it a little bit in the book, is creating relationships. The closer relationship that you can create, especially with children, but I think this goes with everybody, the more likely you'll be able to have a conversation with them where you can talk about what is actually happening with them, how they actually feel. And actually, one of the best things about working with young children is that they generally will just tell you why that they're upset and you can deal with it. So they'll be like, I hate it. I hate that kid. I I hate what he did. It's very like upfront. There's no like, ah, nothing's wrong. It's something that we can deal with immediately and have a conversation. And I think that in that conversation, both with myself and the student or the two students who are affected, you can, you can very quickly diffuse this sort of, this person is the other and I'm angry at the other. And quickly sort of switch that around to like, this person is the other and we can work together something and help each other to move forward and creating something that we're both interested in or creating a situation that we're both interested in or a social situation that we're both interested in. So it is, it's a bit of a judo act to sort of take whatever force they're giving at you and try to turn it around, let them reflect on it, have other children help them reflect on it. And early childhood is got a lot of struggles in terms of being a teacher, in terms of difficulties during the day. But one thing that is great is that things come and go very quickly. There's not a lot of, um, nobody's mad all day long. Nobody's really even mad for an hour or 15 minutes. You can quickly readjust and return to a place of gratitude. And But those skills, that skill to be able to do that, I think is something that we can build and that they can have going forward in other situations. I think everything that you're talking about is somewhat expressed prototypically in Nietzsche's concept of active forgetting, that there's this process by which we can overcome the lingering effects of a wound or an injury or sort of be able to place our focus very quickly on something else that's more enlivening rather than sort of dwell in the mire of resentment. Before we sort of shift gears and shut down the conversation. I wanted to talk a little bit about Will's reading of Nietzsche's concept of reading. I I was fascinated by you saying that before the show. So maybe you could say a few things about that. Yeah, I found it interesting that, that before the meeting, the reading that we did, there was not too much on Nietzsche's concept and approach to reading, which I think has always been kind of heterodox to the ways in which we're, we're meant to understand reading. And 
I think there were three texts that that show that Nietzsche's understanding of our argument for how one ought to approach reading a text is different. And I think that they manifest in different ways in three different in these three different texts. So you have the preface to the genealogy of morals, right? Where he says that it's not really about reading this book. It's more about like struggling with it. And if you can get something out of a particular phrase or sentence after sitting with it, stewing with it for months, that's more valuable than someone who's read the entire book and can write a 1,500-page commentary on it. The other being Schopenhauer as educator, where we get reading as a kind of, gosh, what's the right word? Apprenticeship in philosophical thought. And then finally, we get in Dawn and one other text that I now can't remember, where we get the concept of slow reading. And I think that especially when it comes to pedagogy, when students say, okay, what's the assignment for tonight, right? Or how we simply evaluate how students read. I think we often have an extremely, and it's the worst in philosophy, right? Because one's only a good philosophy student dependent on their quote-unquote reading comprehension, right? Other than that, you're likely a quote-unquote sued or a pseudo-intellectual or something like that. And I think that the approach to reading that Nietzsche has is... I think pretty foreign to this, which is about blood. <laughs> like you have to read with your life. It's brutal. It's not like anyone who's who will like the everyone knows that the worst grad student in the room is someone who says that like the reading last night was easy, right? Or that they completely understand it, that they can map it out. That there's this one moment in in Gilles Deleuze's book on Nietzsche that I actually hate, and it's when he puts up the graph of all these different forces. I hate that. I think that's like the worst thing ever. And like, I hate Deleuze for that. Because what, so, uh, you know, and Deleuze very much is that graduate student. We love to, to make him out to be this like remarkable flow ontologist, but at the same time, he's a really technical thinker that I think Nietzsche would probably call pretty Apollonian sometimes. <laughs> but, but, which is why Craig's tweet that Deleuze is his favorite analytic philosopher is just too good. But I think that Nietzsche has a different approach to reading and one that I find to be a little bit more liberating as someone who like just physically struggles to read. Like it, it's just like I don't have these same markers of success that let's say my classmates in graduate school do, but I struggle with texts like it's war out there. And I think that that this understanding of investment and of reading with one's life, which again, to bring back Bataille, is really important. And I think it's something that's lost. And I think it's particularly something that's lost in higher education, where it becomes a game of signs and a game of the distribution of signs, right? Of citation. But you don't actually have to have read a text <laughs> to cite it anymore. And I think that when we talk about reading and when we talk about the concept of understanding, I think we uphold not only, well, I think it's really important to say that we uphold like really ableist understandings, but we also foreclose on any sort of revolutionary potentiality of reading. If reading just becomes an exercise of flexing one's quote unquote intellectual muscles, it's meaningless. Just like lifting a dumbbell is outside of the context of one's art of life or their health or whatever is meaningless right if it's not if it's not tapped in or if it's not if it's not for anything other than a brute display of utility i think that that the ways in which we're taught to read gesture towards a remarkably 
pallid kind of life when it comes to literature. And I think it's part of the reason why people don't enjoy fucking reading anymore. <laughs> like how many of your friends who aren't in grad school spend a lot of time reading? They don't. And break down how much time you spend reading. I've got the kingdom and the glory, the hermeneutics of the subject, all of this stuff here. Like I'm reading it, but some days it feels as though like I'm not reading with or for my life. And I think that Nietzsche challenges us when he says like, no, let that sentence piss you off. Like get angry with me, get angry with this text. Don't understand it. Fuck that. <laughs> like, and <laughs> I think in some ways like that can be emancipatory. Justin, go ahead. Yeah. Just off of that, which I agree with wholeheartedly, it's difficult to come on here and talk about Nietzsche and education for precisely this reason. I mean, I have sort of an education practice and I have a job in education and it's a passion as well, but I read Nietzsche so that I feel like everything's going to be okay for me. You know what I mean? Like I read Nietzsche because I have like a deep wound in me that I needed to like tend to. And hopefully by tending to that wound, I become a better person father, husband, teacher, person, all of these things. And that filters into the classroom. And I think that it does, but it is definitely difficult to be, I would not go to a staff meeting and be like, I'm bringing some Nietzsche to the like meeting today. And I think that we should consider whatever. And I do like this book because if I was teaching a class, maybe this would be something I could bring to a class and we could talk about it. We could talk about the deeper things, but I agree so much with Will that reading for me, especially reading Nietzsche is a very personal thing. And of course, I hope that brings something to all of the other aspects of my life, but it is not necessarily so that I, it's certainly not necessarily so that I become a better teacher or that I bring some sort of Nietzschean pedagogy into the classroom necessarily. And I think one of the things that's connected to Nietzsche on reading and one concept or one aspect of Nietzsche's work that in some ways is underemphasized, but it's certainly there. And it's the idea of repose and the repose that occurs when we engage in the meditation of reading. I was introduced to Nietzsche's works while well, I started reading them seriously in college. And around the same time, I was also in an East Asian studies double major. And so I was doing a lot of work on Asian philosophical texts. And it's interesting to see somewhat of the overlap between Confucius sentiments on reading and Nietzsche's in some way. And the one thing that Justin and I had also read in preparation for this, and I'll just put it on camera right now, is the anti-education seminar series by Nietzsche that's out on New York Review of Books, which is excellent. I did a speed run of it in O'Hare Airport once, which didn't do it justice. But going back to it this time, years later, I was really immersed in it. And I think there's a convergence of two very important things <clears throat> in the very first lecture. And I would say, if you want a sort of snow globe encapsulation of Nietzsche's theory of education, I would say just read that first lecture and then, of course, go on and read the other lectures in the seminar. What we get is basically it breaks down like this. Nietzsche and his pals basically made a pact to meet up with each other every summer to go on this summer retreat where they would do some philosophizing. And then one summer they went to do it. They were waiting for a friend. And while waiting for friends, they were shooting some guns, doing some target practice, having some fun. And it upset some guy in 
his companion who ends up being his student who's nearby and they come to find out later that this person with whom they're struggling with was actually a philosopher and it's not clear to me in the essay or perhaps i read it too quickly this time to to figure out who actually was but somebody in the group it might have been himself was upset unsettled by the fact that they were that they committed themselves to a space to do some philosophizing either in solitude or sort of in a close group of friends where there would be like long periods of solitude, but that this other philosophical figure was amongst them in the same, occupying the same space. And it comes out later after talking to this philosopher, this older philosopher, that this was the sentiment that was held by somebody in the group that they felt a little bit anxious or they felt a little bit reserved about continuing this retreat and doing philosophy in the face of another philosopher, as if the imposition of the presence of this philosopher would prevent the other person from philosophizing. And it's just interesting seeing this dynamic in like this little, what well, could be construed as a parable. I mean, it's more of an anecdote, but the idea that we could provide to ourselves a space of repose to do philosophy, I mean, it's so difficult in this world, especially if you're a father and you're working a full-time job and doing those things. But to find those mo moments of solace is very important. But not only that, the presentation of a figure of authority, of philosophy before us, stands before us as a kind of daunting figure sometimes, often as because within that figure is a kind of power of judgment, or at least it invokes the threat of judgment in some ways. And one of the challenges I think that Nietzsche presents to us in our own pursuit of a philosophical education is, at some point, we need to be the creators, right? For in as much as we love Deleuze, Foucault, Nietzsche, Marx, or whomever it is that we read, in some ways we are reacting to them. So the sort of the challenge of to be eminent, to assert one's voice, and to partake in philosophy as an act of creativity is one that's quite daunting. And I just kind of wanted to put that in there. And I'm wondering if you got the same impressions, Justin, from that. Yeah, absolutely. I thought, I mean, I agree 100%. And I thought that the other thing that I found super valuable about that first chapter was that him talking about how this small club of friends had been really his education and everything else had sort of been crafted around it, that it was actually this small self-chosen group that provided the most value to him and to his friends. Um, and during their educational educational process. And I think something that you said too about how the philosopher is there and stymies there sort of philosophizing. I think about that being a teacher too. I know that I come into the classroom with a certain level of authority already as the teacher. And honestly, there has to be some process of me breaking that down for the children as well to try to close the gap a little bit so that give them the space in which that they can do those things without feeling like they're under that eye of judgment all the time. That's a tactic as well. Just trying to, it's always going to be there. You're never going to reach zero. You are the one who can reach the high things in an emergency. You have to do what you have to do. But during the everyday basis, you want to not have them worry about what they're doing and give them that space. And I think that's on the teacher to bring down his level of authority and level of power as much as possible in the classroom to allow them to do that in the way that not stifle them, the way that Nietzsche and his friends were worried about with his philosopher. Yeah. And I think the phrase creating a space or maintaining a space is probably one of the primary activities of a teacher. That's at least the way that I saw it, that I was creating a space where, you know, a certain enriched kind of interaction, if not a kind of play would take place. 
Well, as we wind this down, before I forget, I just want to say thank you, Justin, for coming on the show. One of the ways that at least I perceive this encounter here, Acid Horizon and the many friends that we meet on Twitter is an alternative educational space. And you are now part of the assemblage. And we always thought that you were. So I just wanted to say thank you. But maybe before we go, everyone besides myself can maybe say a few things in closing about something they took away that was valuable from this, or maybe they want to express a sentiment that they've been holding on to. So Matt, since you haven't spoken in a while, maybe you can go first. Yeah, no, I found the discussion really useful, actually, trying to unpick some of Nietzsche's views on education and then what it means for people who read Nietzsche and are in education, if you are our teachers more specifically. I don't know, I think I quite come away a little bit mixed on it. There's something in the, there's something in the approach which I'm still sort of cautious of and which I would want to dig a little bit deeper into, partly because I think there's a worry for me about the status of the sort of the great individual, the one who rises above the rest and inspires those below and so on and so forth, right? I, that that has some problems for me. But I do appreciate also the way his critique of what I think is some sort of called sort of the, the, what's it, the, the student machine or the education machine, right? This, I, this endlessly narrower and narrower paradigm through which education is understood. And I think Will's point also about how Nietzsche approached his reading was helpful there too because uh, there has to be stakes in what we read, right? It has to be grounded in what, in, in, in what we actually make of the world, what we, how we participate in it. Part of the problem, of course, I, I would suggest, with a lot of education is that it, it isn't, whether it's humanities or STEM or whatever. So I found that helpful as well. Um, and it, it vibes or gels with some of the other sort of authors I would think of when I think of the critique of education or traditional model of education, including, interestingly, I, for some reason, I was thinking at some points in here about a Gail Glukach and his critique of reification, where he sees it sort of spreading further and further into every sphere of life under capitalist society. And it struck me that maybe that, was, maybe that would be an interesting way to go with that too. So yeah, I mean, there was some of I wasn't so sure and there was some stuff that I found really useful as well. So yeah, interesting one for me. Great. I think Will's indisposed at the moment. Maybe Justin, you can say a few things first. Yeah, I really appreciate the conversation, the chance to be on, the chance to sort of join the assemblage, as it were. I do appreciate this space, similar to what I was saying before, just you're trying to create a space that can do this type of conversation and have, be a little resistant to these dominating forces that we're all sort of subject to and produced by. That's what I'm trying to do both in my life and to extend it into the classroom. And it's not always a hopeful thing, but I think that's the other thing that I like about reading Nietzsche is while he is not one who gives you hope per se, he would not necessarily want you to have hope, but to give yourself a space and a strategy and an idea of what can be done, what is possible, It'll give you a chance to be your own creator, It'll give you a chance to take his tools and to sort of do something on your own with them and work on something inside you and have that manifest itself in your life in various different ways. Who knows what can come from that? I mean, the dice are thrown and we get to see what happens. And I remain someone who wants to play, certainly, every day. Great. Will, you get the last word. I guess my last word is will just be from Foucault. I mean, I still dream of a professor who can find himself within the halls of academia just to set it on fire. 